0: Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand. Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by my brother, mayor of Neo-Tokyo, Dagan Moriarty. Tetsuo Kaneda! <laughs> hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> Thank that you. That was pretty good. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Dagan, as we've insinuated three different ways by using Tetsuo Canada, and Neo-Tokyo, we're talking yeah. about Akira today. On this podcast, this episode of Knockback, our retro series, we're working our way through the fourth wave of recordings. These are all Dagan topics, unless they're topics that you voted for, but I think we've already done all of those, if I recall. We have. So these topics are a robust kind of reflection on Dagan's kind of desires, and I'm, I'm really enjoying recording this wave. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Remember, you can support Knockback on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. If you want early access, one week early to each episode ad-free. And the financial situation allows us to continue to do these shows. We do them in person every two or two and a half months we record them in batches of eight, nine, or ten. And I feel like it's best that way. I don't like recording. you know well I was going to say the old-fashioned way. it's actually the new-fashioned way. <laughs> This is the old-fashioned way.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's weird.
0: You can also submit questions, comments, and concerns, get exclusive podcasts, etc. And and so if you do have a few bucks to spare each month and you want to support us, remember that your support on Patreon also allows my other shows to exist as well. So you get a lot of perks and a lot of access, and it's very much appreciated. Dagan, for this wave, before we get into the topics, we've been doing something called Change in the Subject. Yes, sir. And what Change in the Subject is for the uninitiated is just a small kind of non-sequitur that we do before we get into the main topic. For something that I don't think would be covered on Knockback in a full episode, so and they're and again they're non sequiturs, they're unrelated. So I'm interested to see what Dagan <laughs> wants to discuss for a few moments today. What
1: an eclectic list this is! As I is. look at it, and knock them off one by one. So today, Kyle, I want to get your take on something we rarely get to discuss: mm. Cowboys. Oh, not the Dallas Cowboys.
0: Right. Okay. Sorry, Uncle Mike. Yeah, I, I could talk extensively about the Dallas Cowboys if you like, but we don't have to do that today. Just Cowboys mm. in general.
1: What's your stance on? What's your take on Cowboys? Don't like them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, just don't like them. I thought this was going to be the case. You know what? I just wasn't. The cowboy and Indian thing or like the Wild West and the Western just never appealed to me as a kid. I think as I got older, there have been certain situations, certain pieces of fiction that have made cowboys really cool and interesting to me, whether that's Red Dead Redemption or, you know, to an extent, Westworld or to a greater extent, Hell on Wheels, where there's like nice, good insight into what the West was. But. I actually did a video on this on the original Collins Last Stand channel on the political channel about what the West really was and how it's been kind of bastardized a little bit. And it's a pretty harrowing thing. The guys that went out there were very brave, and a lot of them were insane. But I just, as a as a device of fiction, I've never really been into cowboys. I just don't really understand the allure of this very, you know, pre and post Civil War, right up to the Industrial Revolution, really kind of taking over the United States and kind of pushing them out. Yeah. I don't know. Not really into it. How about you? Yeah.
1: And it kind of bypassed that whole craze of the 50s. And I guess maybe it, it kind of seeped into the 60s of the cowboy and Indian films and stuff like that. That's things that completely bypassed our generation. In fact, I, I lo- our gen- collective generations. But I love the fact that you brought up things like Westworld and stuff because there is sort of a return. And when I was in, I guess when I was in high school, you might not remember this. I guess I was high school age or junior high school age, there was a TV series called Young Guns. That was pretty popular that was trying to refresh the cowboy genre. And I remember being pretty into it. It was about a collection of sort of characters loosely based on legendary or actual real life people like Wild Bill Hickok and stuff in a group of them that were kind of, you know, collectively a band of mercenaries, basically. But I remember it was pretty people thought it was pretty cool. And I had a friend named Pat in high school who just refused to get into it. And he was, I
0: just hate cowboys because they're dirty. <laughs>
1: that was his whole thing. I understood that. It made sense to me, you know.
0: No disrespect to the people that enjoy that stuff. But I don't know that I've ever been really bombarded with fiction until, and not even bombarded, but exposed to like actual tangible and reachable fiction. So like not pulp novels and things that I would never access or whatever. But like, yeah. it really was until Hell on Wheels, I think, that I really sat down and did something in the West that I enjoyed or whatever. Right. It's just, it's just not for me. I, and you were
1: never a little ha- – well, this isn't really Cowboy, but you weren't a Little House on the Prairie guy?
0: No, not really. Ingles, you know – Again, way be- – Laura Ingles Wilder? <laughs> I, I, I I don't know if that's like – you're. that's cool. Like people need to look at the fact that the nostalgia for Cowboys really began a long, long time ago in the 19th century. And that's when shit like that was being written. And the idea of the Oregon Trail and kind of the westward journey and the dangers, the Donner Party and all that kind of stuff that that attracted people to – you know, the gold rushes in both – in many gold rushes in California and even the, the Yukon and Alaska and all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting stuff. But it's just that aesthetic, that sandy aesthetic, the the tumbleweed, the cactus. Dusty. That doesn't do it for me. It's it's actually interesting because when you get go to the north and into the Pacific Northwest or you go to the gold rushes and, and read about the Yukon Territory, the Northwest Territory, Alaska, that's really the same kind of people. It's just a different aesthetic and it's way more interesting to me
1: because yeah. of that. No, I hear that. I totally hear that. Where do you stand – real quick on the whole cyber western genre that's a weird one
0: well it's funny man because a steampunk kind of cyber western or kind of bastardized western is one of my favorite games which is wild arms right so point. so that is a little weird because that wild arms does have a cowboy western aesthetic definitely so i I suppose i should throw that out it makes me a little bit of a hypocrite not to say that but the weird fusions of genres are cool but it's really got to be i i mean westworld is that so that is more interesting but as far as i understand and i hope no one You know, endeavors to spoil it for us. I've not even gotten through the first season of Westworld yet, No, but I think the second season of Westworld is in a totally different place, as far as I understand. Oh, is that right? I think so. I didn't
1: even realize that. Uh, You know, Westworld could be amazing, and it could get amazing. It's never going to be as good as Wild Arms. The end.
0: It's a really nice idea, but I also felt like that show was a little plodding, a little slow. That's why I didn't get through the first season. I'm like, I don't... Yeah. I'm not super riveted by this. Right, right. I feel like there's a little bit of craziness sometimes with, you know, and again, it's all about taste and all about subjectivity, but there are certain shows where I'm like, I don't know that this, this is as good as everyone's saying it is. I, I felt that way about The Walking Dead forever, and then finally, five years later, everyone came around. But yeah. I feel maybe Westworld is another one of those shows.
1: Yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't want to judge it too harshly. I haven't seen too much of it. It's certainly no down Oh, No. You want to talk about period pieces? <laughs> no, not at all. Let me be really clear about something. Okay. Lady Mary, way more interesting than oh, Mary, cowboy. Great character. You know? She's La- wonderful. Lady Sybil, way sexier. Than anyone in Very the cute. Wild West. Very cute. I'll
1: agree with you on that.
0: And I'm going to give a little bit of a shout out to Princess Margaret and the Crown as well. Okay. All right.
1: Okay, yeah. Mr. Bates. Mr. Bates.
0: <laughs> Everyone loved Mr. Bates. <laughs> He's great. You know, you always feel a little bad for him.
1: Yeah, there's some sympath- element of sympathy with yeah. that character. Yeah.
0: They never really get into the story too deeply about... How they fought in the Boer War, I think, in Africa together.
1: The man of the house. Yeah,
0: and well, I can't believe I can't think of his name, Sir. Uh, I don't even remember. Whatever. And is. and it's sad because I've seen it three times. <laughs> you watched and, it all the way through three times. Yeah, and wow. and Bates, and so there's cool stuff. That, anyway, we're getting way off the top. We're getting way off the topic of getting way off the topic. Let's get back to the east. Let's get let's go to the east. Yeah, in fact, Akira. Now, you wanted to bring this up, and this made a lot of sense to me. As I told you, one of my major memories of your room when I was growing up was above your, you had a big drafting table and above it was an Akira poster that said Neo Tokyo is about to explode and I actually googled it to find it and it's, it's out there still so that's pretty cool. It and just I can, remember
1: can, like Kaneda like, chopped off at the knees, right? Just yeah. standing there.
0: And it says, yeah, it says Akira Neo Tokyo is about to explode with E-X-P-L-O-D-E with like dots in between them. Yeah. And like the city, Neo Tokyo is in the background kind of a cityscape. I remember buying and, that. And I remember that very well being in your room above your table and i also remember watching it and what's funny is that i don't think as we were reflecting we watched it last night from when we were recording this yep and we watched the dub and you were saying that it might even be a new dub i, I think that there are multiple versions of it as far as i was reading there which is are interesting. yeah so i think this was the 2002 maybe dub okay and it's funny because i was watching it and i'm like i don't remember almost any of this i remembered like certain instances because even erin was asking me i think you went to the bathroom she's like what is this about and i'm like I don't really remember. It's like, hard to describe. Like a god, like psychic, god, character with psychic abilities, and like this kind of dubious conflict, this war that seemed to have begun, like World War Three, and stuff like that. And I, I'm like, I don't really remember, and I certainly didn't know that when I was a kid watching it. When I was, you know, eight. It's very strange,
1: and sort of br- some details are brushed over, especially in the anime. If you're not familiar with the manga, which it's based on, it's a very condensed version of the manga, basically, which spanned a year, which really spanned years and actually went two
0: years beyond the film's release yeah 82 to 90 I saw right I gotta plead ignorance and, and kind of be honest about it I had no idea I should have known better out honestly but I didn't know it was a manga until you told me I was like I always just assumed it was a, a film I know right. I know it's a seminal film and I don't know that people talk about it being a seminal manga I always thought that that was really interesting that I, I just didn't I didn't know that I just thought it was like a film like a really important Western released film that yeah. finally exposed this style to people and that's why i always thought it was most important
1: no absolutely and one of the manga as a whole was one of the first thing one of the early things that were translated in its entirety into english for the west i think marvel brought it over actually under like their epic label i'm glad we're getting an opportunity to talk about it because knockback is still i think in its you know in its beginnings it's in its infancy still and we're going to talk a lot about anime and manga through the different iterations and through our different waves so I think it's hard to have a discussion about anime without first talking about Akira it's vital to talk about it's it had such a huge impact in several different ways so
0: yeah it sure did and I will say as you know kind of a continuation of that that we did have a discussion early on in knockbacks run about Dagon's exposure to anime and and what it was like to be an anime fan in the 80s when no one was watching it and so that's this is kind of a continuation of that conversation as well if you've not listened to it I do highly recommend that you go back into the back catalog of Knockback and check that one out that's one of my favorite episodes of our show so far so check that one out thanks Cole so Akira comes out in 1988 in film form in both Japan and around the world and I was surprised to learn that it was, as you were saying, Western release by Marvel in terms of the manga, but that there was a Western distributor that had it translated and ready to go pretty Im- much immediately upon release in Japan, which I, which is, which must have been so stunning 30 years ago. That was an era when it took literally years for us to get video games. Yeah. If we were going to get them at all. Yeah. And we never even got an Akira video game, I think, until PlayStation 2. We got like a pinball game.
1: I think there was some like an Amiga game and there was actually an Akira game on the Famicom.
0: An adventure game. A
1: text-based adventure. Yeah.
0: Which I'm sure you can get on an emulation site translated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be fun. So I'm curious, Dagan, what your exposure to this was and kind of how this ties into your love of anime and if it was actually even maybe responsible for it. Because watching it with you and kind of we were remarking on it and kind of talking about it as we were watching, especially because it's in Japanese. So we can just read the translations and we're not like talking over the dialogue. It's stunningly beautiful. In a lot of different ways. It looks pretty crude in other ways too, in my opinion, but not really knowing much about the art. I want to
1: hear you, I wanna hear your take on that later. But But said. it's the
0: same way I feel about Attack on Titan. Like when you and I talk about that, I'm yeah. like Attack on Titan looks really good sometimes and really bad. Sometimes. Yeah, no, I know what you mean by and that. And I think a lot of the characters' faces and when they in Akira, when they pan the camera around, like there's weirdness to the character models and stuff. Well, they're not models, they're hand drawn. Yeah. So I'm curious what your take on this is, and you know how seminal this film still is looked at today. It's one, considered one of the great animated films of any kind. It is, and so talk to me a little bit about how you discovered it. So it's weird for me because I was I kind of was in
1: into anime and manga a little bit earlier than a- when Akira came out, or around the same time, but a little bit earlier. So it wasn't like so many people, and I'm also a little bit older, but like for so many people. This was, Akira was one of their introductions into anime and into Japanese animated film and even manga. But for me, it kind of blended in with my experience of first being introduced into anime and again going back to that, you know, when anime was underground episode that we did. My friend Pat in high school, I guess ninth going into 10th grade, had introduced me to anime and had started bringing me to these conventions where it was a comic book, con- a monthly comic book convention, but there, if you guys remember, but there was like a little section of a guy selling bootleg VHS tapes of anime, and he had anime art books and some manga and stuff like that too. And I remember very distinctly; remember the guy had Xeroxed lists of his content. So whatever you know, he had like the Ranma TV series, episodes of Bubblegum Crisis, the early Miyazaki films, Castle of Cagliostro, or Totoro, and he, one of his, I remember going through, you know, he had the bindings of the VHS tapes in those big comic book boxes. So the bindings were facing up, very neatly drawn, because they were all dubbed. You know, everything was dubbed, you know, from Laserdisc or dubbed to dubbed from VHS. And he had it written very neatly in Sharpie marker, all the titles. And I remember seeing in those boxes, Akira was one of those things. And it's one of the earlier things that I picked up. Now, I didn't know anything about Akira going into it it's not like i knew that they were making it because i think they started production back in like 84 oddly enough this movie only took like three or four years to make which is unbelievable if you think about this movie was done purely on film hand-drawn cell painted with hand-painted backgrounds that's an amazing accomplishment if you look at the amount of detail and the amount of nuance and minutiae in the film from the animation to everything about the art you know the the fact that the production only took that long is unbelievable so i didn't have really any kind of sort of prompt going in i just saw it and i think what the only difference between akira at that time and something else that we might have been interested in is that the early anime magazines might have had it on their cover and might have had articles on it and there was also some merchandise at that point like there were akira posters which is, I think I got that Akira poster very early, probably in 89. And Akira t-shirts and stuff like that. I don't know if there were Akira art books available to me at that time, but it's also odd, Kyle, because there were, if you think of other popular anime of the 80s, like let's say something done by AIC, a thing like Galforce or Bubblegum Crisis, there were posters for that stuff too. So it wasn't, it's not like Akira had that much more stuff, but I think it just caught our eye, and I think we'll get into this more, but I think it's also it because Akira looks different. The style is different. Katsuhiro Otomo's work stands out. It doesn't, and I want we'll get much more into this, but in other ways, but also especially aesthetically, it doesn't rely on typical anime conventions. It, it automatically stands out because it looks very different. And all you need to see is a poster for that. This looks like anime, but it also looks different. And I think that was... For my generation and people that were already into anime, I think that's what sucked us in, was that it was unique. It looked unique. And that was my very first thing. And you know what's funny? The first VHS, which I still own, might have been dubbed from Laserdisc, but I'm not sure, was the purely Japanese version. No sub, no dub. And there was, as you talked about already, there was a very early dub of the film. Which is kind of near and dear to my heart because I watched it so many times as a kid that I must have got not too long. Me or one of my close friends like Pat must have purchased it not too long after we had that initial Japanese version. And I don't know if you remember it, Kyle, because I watched it a lot when I was little. The Voice of Canada is actually, I I always sort of forget this guy's name, which is such a seminal voice of our youth. Well, he was the voice of Leonardo in Ninja Turtles, but he did a lot of voices of cartoons that we grew up with and he was the voice that voice actor was the voice of Canada in that early American dub that early English
0: dub I should say and um I don't do you remember watching that version with that voice not I mean I, w- I don't know that I would have made that connection I literally do not remember almost any of it
1: you were really young
0: I remember watching I remember being exposed to it because I was exposed to all of those things but I do like how they've gone back and kind of treated it with care but I, w- I guess well I have multiple questions I guess we should start with uh Katsuhiro Otomo who's kind of the creative visionary behind both the manga and the and the animated movie. Yeah. Who is this dude, and where did he come from? I, I, I kind of looked... I don't know any of his work. I looked at his kind of selected works or whatever. He's an
1: interesting man because he is one of those rare... He started as a manga artist, and his first published manga, if I'm not mistaken, was early in the 70s. He had a manga, a popular manga series called Fireball, and he kind of rose to... I don't want to say he rose to fame, but he sort of rose to, you know, having some kind of semblance of an audience and rose to popularity through his early manga works like Fireball. And what had happened with Otomo was he was a guy who I think always stood out because his visually he sort of rallied against convention. It's hard to find too much talking about this, but he had his own style and his own vision. And I think if you go back with anime and manga like anything else, there's trends. There's trends in storytelling, there's trends in subject matter, and there's trends in visual style. And if you look at certain periods, just like any art really, but if you look at certain periods of manga, you could see very specific styles being popular. And I think a lot of that was the publishing companies and the people that were putting this out, the money people, sort of asserting some sort of pressure to be in a certain mold, because that what was popular at the time, which is understandable, like a lot of things. And he, very early on, the way he drew up comic page, the way he staged something, the way he rendered something, even his subject matter, he was always very concerned, or very sort of put emphasis on, you know, people with psychic abilities. And you know, sort of that sort of sort of early cyberpunk, really, to put it simply. And I think that's what sort of made him tick. But the interesting thing about Atomo is he started as a manga artist. And once he committed to doing Akira, an animated version of Akira, he basically became an anime, strictly an anime guy. And which is actually interesting because he's a brilliant illustrator. And he even has certain... I don't know, he didn't really do editorial illustrations, but just singular illustrations. He has a couple of art books from the 80s that are really, really beautiful. And so, aside from being a manga artist and a storyteller, he's actually a brilliant illustrator. So, it's very interesting. He had a very interesting trajectory to me to be somebody to actually walk away from manga. You know, it's understandable with the popularity of Akira. And maybe he just felt like his voice was more heard, you know, doing film rather than comics. But Akira was my introduction to him. And the film was my introduction because I found out, I sort of went backwards into the manga once I found out, once I started enjoying the film, then I went back and found out more about his manga, which then led me to his illustrated books, which I don't own any, but I remember in the Akira manga, they would advertise his art books as well. And I remember he had a really cool drawing. He had a really cool painting of a hippopotamus, standing in, like, a living room. But the hippopotamus was, like, up to his head in water. So the living room was filled with water and all this stuff, like the end table and the fishbowl and stuff were floating. It's really gorgeous work. He's really quite a magnificent illustrator. But So that was my sort of early impressions of Katsuhiro Otomo. And also the stuff that he went on to do, which we we probably won't get too into today, after Akira, you know, for better or for worse, it never caught, you know, the lightning in the bottle that Akira did. I think Akira was a tough act to follow, and he never quite matched it.
0: Talk to me a little bit about what Akira is about okay. in terms of its plot, because obviously it starts very briefly in 1988, and then sh- we were remarking it zooms forward to 2019, which at the time seems so far away, and now that's next year. So an interesting kind of, a kind of situation there. But it seems that the underlying message of it to me is some sort of nuclear or some sort of existential threat or existential dread that's in Japanese culture having to do with the bombings. In World War II and absolutely I don't think a hero could per- really take place anywhere else and I know that that's something that was challenging them in terms of getting the live-action version of it which we can talk about in a little while yeah doesn't exist yet but they've been trying to do that for almost 20 years so tell me a little bit about what the sh- I guess what the whole story is about both the manga and the anime although the anime is basically only m- some of the story
1: yeah and I won't confuse it by going into the manga because what really essentially not to oversimplify but essentially the anime is a very condensed version of the manga, the manga spanning almost a decade. So you have to understand that a film version of Akira is a very condensed version of the story, but I won't confuse it by talking about things, you know, juxtaposing the manga versus the anime. Let's just talk about the anime. So it's intimated, though no one, re- it's never really explained that World War III begins because somebody nukes Tokyo. Tokyo is destroyed in a nuclear blast and that's what prompts world war 3. They don't explain why what that is or why that is. You could we would imagine okay the United States jumped on Japan's side and fought whoever's fucking with Japan, but we don't know that for sure. The United States plays a much bigger role in the comic book doesn't play any role in the manga whatsoever. So what had it's it, so what happened in the anime in the anime right. right the united states doesn't play you know it th- doesn't get into any political things outside of what's going on in japan in the anime but there's a much broader political spectrum represented in the comics over time including the united states involvement in everything you know which is a little insidious actually so the story is presented so tokyo is destroyed and then rebuilt an artificial city basically a new tokyo is built out on Tokyo Bay on basically this giant platform on the water. And that's where Neo-Tokyo exists now. Tokyo is rebuilt on top of Tokyo Bay. And it's not really explained in detail, but it's an oppress you know, sort of an oppressive government. You know, a lot of the population is sort of rallying against the government. And it's sort of a typical, I don't want to say typical, but sort of a typical sort of post apocalyptic cyberpunk atmosphere and the and it seems like a lot of it, you know, a lot of the downtown area is ruled by crime and ruled by bike gangs. And everything's sort of seen through the lens of this one bike gang are sort of protagonists and sort of are <laughs> sort of anti-heroes, a gang called the Capsules. And the leader of the Capsules is a kid named Canada, and then he has a group of guys that are his friends including his best friend that he grew up with from childhood called Tetsuo. And that's how it sort of begins. So you all you, all you know is that the bike gangs are fighting each other. It sort of centers on the capsules. They have a rival gang called the Clowns.
0: I love and, the design of the Clowns. And the, so and their, cool. And their helmets and stuff like that. Right? Oh, it's
1: so neat. It's so cool. And that's sort of where it jumps off. And then the story takes place from there.
0: I don't know where they got these names, the Capsules. The, capsules. And the Clowns. These are the best names you can come up with. Okay. Yeah, pretty that cool. named
1: after the drug, you know. And you know, also we should say very early on, it, it's painted for us that you know these kids are re- really into drugs, you know. And you know, the main character Kaneda, of course, famously has the pill painted on the back of his jacket, you know, hence the capsules, I guess. And you know, it's really you know that sort of oppressive, dark, rainy cyberpunk atmosphere is painted very early it looks like an oppressive culture you know what it always reminds me of neo tokyo in, in the early part it reminds me of new york city they show an affluent sort of prosperous side that seems to be trying to just push forward but it's sort of you know that crime element is very eminent and very prominent you know it always reminds me of that you know, you see very early the guy pulls into the guy in the nice car pulls into the intersection he's just waiting at a light here comes the bike gang and they they blow up his car. Right. You know. And
0: they throw a grenade in
1: <laughs> It's almost like very 70s New York. Right, right. You know, the nice the people are eating in the nice restaurant, but here comes the gang one of the guy flies through the window. It looks like there's probably a prosperous side but that sort of impoverished destitute side is pushing through. You know, and sort of juxtapose also with all the rallying and you see the people, you know, rioting in the streets and everything like that. So, you know, something's afoot politically.
0: So let's go deeper into, I guess, the main through line through the story, which is these psychic abilities that they have or one of them has. And how this plays in, I guess, to the story and the intrigue and the people that are chasing them and these bizarre, almost blue skinned characters that. They find out, I mean, tell, let's go a little deeper into the lore and, and talk to me a little bit about that element. Of sure. It. Now that we've established Neo-Tokyo and kind of the protagonists.
1: Right. So the main characters, all the kids, all drive motorcycles. And our protagonists, Kaneda and Tetsuo and their gang are pursuing the rival gang called the clowns. And they're on the out on the freeway and there's a chase. And Canada and Tetsuo are chasing a couple of the clowns on bikes and... And it so happens that there's this weird little blue-skinned kid standing in the middle of the street, and Tetsuo crashes into him and gets really hurt. And that sort of preempts everything that's going to happen in the film now. Who is this kid? What had happens is after the accident, some weird government faction kind of swoops in in helicopters and t- basically takes Tetsuo away. And everybody's like, what the hell is going on? Who is this little blue-skinned kid, and why are they why are they whisking Tetsuo off? and that sort of opens the box for everything that's going to happen now which also you know which also is very is actually quite it could be quite confusing you know i don't know how well the anime condenses the story when you know that whole story as a whole that played out in the comic books it's it could get very very confusing and it's very you know i'll say it's open to interpretation in certain ways they gloss over certain details and they sort of you know, try to condense it in a way that could be confusing because the story is actually quite complicated, you know. And then there's also a group of terrorists that are, you know, opposing the government. We're not exactly sure why. And then they become involved. So it becomes Canada and his group of people, the government, the terrorists. You know, Canada meets one of these girls and kind of develops a love interest with a girl who's part of this group of terrorists. So the story plays out through what initially happens with Tetsuo's accident. And, you know, colliding with this little psychic, turns out to be this little psychic boy.
0: We got questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. Remember, if you support us at the $2 level or higher on Patreon at patreon.com slash Last Stand, you can submit topic ideas for the show, vote on other people's topic ideas, and also get early access to the topics we're going to record next so you can submit your thoughts on them. And we have quite a few thoughts on Akira. Oh, I can't wait to hear these. Ryan Van Wingerdon asks us or, or says, and, and this is kind of gets into what you're saying. Yeah. The movie is based on a manga or a manga series. I, I always go to read a manga when I'm actually when I'm actually seeing it, but manga series. And actually the author of the manga also served as the director of the movie. The movie is essentially the first half of the first volume and the second half of the last volume with a second act that tries to link the two together. The result for the first time viewers unfamiliar with the manga is a convoluted third act that escalates extremely quickly and only touches on ideas that the manga expands on in great detail. Yes. don't get me wrong, Akira is an incredible movie, but I watched the film before reading the manga and the ending confused the shit out of me. After reading the source material and many, many repeat viewings, I've grown to regard it as a masterpiece. My question is this. Should an adaptation require so much investment on the part of the viewer for it to even make sense, such as multiple viewings and reading the source material? And is this a knock against the movie? From an objective standpoint, it has to be a knock against the movie. If you can't... Akira is not the first thing that's been reduced from a source into a movie, and it's done effectively very often. So, not always, but very often it's, it's done effectively. So I'm wondering... If you think it is a knock against the film.
1: Hey, Ryan, that's well said. And I think, you know, I think for me, what really wins me over about Akira are two things. The universe that it paints, you know, the sort of cyberpunk atmosphere that it depicts and the gorgeous level of art and animation. I really do think that's what they were going for with this film. Now, if you look at the story of Akira It's not that the story in the manga is not good or impressive, but if you just look at the anime version, there's really nothing engaging in it. We don't know any of the characters from beginning to end. The only really engaging character that we sort of get to witness is Tetsuo. And I would also argue that Tetsuo and Kaneda's friendship is a character. But the character of Kaneda is not even interesting. He's not an interesting character at all. We don't know anything about him. You know, what I mean, all we know is that there's a history between Canada and Tetsuo and that they basically grew up in an orphanage together, you know, which is sort of intimated, but not even really that clearly described. And that Tetsuo was abandoned as a kid and that they grew up together and that there was always some sort of bullying. Tetsuo being a year younger than Canada and sort of his junior and, Te- you know, canada sort of being sort of being a mean spirited kid. That there was always some sort of bullying relationship through that friendship that, frustrated at Tetsuo and when he becomes powerful that becomes obvious that he wants to sort of assert his power over Kaneda but even but even the character of Tetsuo is pretty interesting but there are no other interesting characters in the entire film I would argue that's not what we're watching for me honestly I don't even mean to even sound callous about it and that this just might be my very Dagon-esque interpretation of it but for me it's just sheer eye candy it's just gorgeous you know, it's just a gorgeous film. And what's really striking now, almost 30 years later, is how well it holds up. And that, honestly, I'm not saying things haven't come close to Akira quality-wise. Not too many, though. But if even if you think of something like Masamune Shiro's Ghost in the Shell, another gorgeous film, that was done, you know, largely digitally. A lot of it was digital. So if you go back to this period, even if you emulated all the nuance and all the detail and the beautiful animation and the beautiful amount of sort of minutiae, it wouldn't mean the same. It's not hand-painted. It's not filmed under a camera. You know what I mean? I think what Akira accomplishes visually is staggering. Uh, What sacrifice was this movie done? And I I don't know if that's just somebody who knows animation inherently what goes into it. But I still see things in Akira, little details like we'll talk about in a little while, like when we were watching last night, a little detail that I didn't even notice. There's so much, I say, unnecessary, in quotes, amount of detail in this film. And that's really what does it for me. I'm not watching it for the story. And Ryan's absolutely correct. The ending in this film is completely, it's not only is it rushed, like Ryan said, but it, it makes absolutely no sense if you don't know the manga. I really do think that they weren't even going for that. I think they had to. You could have made it another hour longer, but quite frankly, this movie isn't paced well. You know, I remember really the maybe like the first 10 years of watching it. I'll be completely honest with you, which is an odd thing to say. I don't think I ever got through it without falling asleep, all the way through it without falling asleep. The middle act of this movie is just like, what? You know, like it's just like, oh my God.
0: Like, yeah, I went out and walked a little, I think, during the middle of the movie. it's moving guess, really
1: like, slow right now. Yeah. You it, know?
0: Well, I want to talk about the techniques that they used to make it, because I'm always interested in this, and I don't know much about it, and certainly a lot of people don't know how animation really worked in the pre-computer age or in the pre-digital age. Yeah. It is really fascinating, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. I do want to acknowledge Alec Budge did write to us and says, Is my young age 23 years old? Okay. The reason I did not find Akira to be very good or enjoyable. Hmm. The art and world building were fun, but ultimately the characters were mostly unlikable, and the plot felt incoherent. Sorry for shitting on everyone's fondness of the film.
1: No, it's fine. It's Alec. Alec, yes. It's funny. It's it's really nice to get a younger person's perspective, and Alec is obviously really young, and especially with the amount of animated film now, looking sort of through that context and that perspective, and the amount of anime now that's available, you know, I think it is a di- a big difference because we didn't have that much yet in the West. There wasn't that much to compare it to. But Alec, I will say that from my perspective, a lot of the fondness for this film for me is just knowing what they accomplished at the time they accomplished it. This film was an enormous undertaking. It's amazing that they got this thing done in the amount of time they got it done in with the amount of nuance and TLC that was put into it. This was not a thing back then. And, you know, famously when they were looking to distribute it in the West, they knew what they had and they knew that this thing was going to raise eyebrows, but they went to people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, supposedly, and they were just like, this is not going to find an audience in the West, you know, which which I have no idea who have the lack of vision to know that this thing wasn't special. So we're looking at it in a much different context than you, Alec, as being 20 years older than you, you know, for myself, and Colin being 10 years older than you, that this film has an enormous historical significance that, you know, that can't really be overstated. And I think that's a big part of it. I could see someone in your generation, you have much more to compare it to. I could see being much more critical of it now, you know.
0: Patrick Molloy wrote into us and said, Akira and Blade Runner are two films that have a lot in common for me. Both are futuristic in terms of setting and having stunning artwork and visuals. In my opinion, they both have rambling, convoluted, overly drawn out stories. For both (laughs) movies, my adoration almost completely comes from the worlds they depict rather than the stories they tell. Do you guys feel similarly, or is it just me? I think that that's what we're saying is that I don't know that I know enough to ha- feel one way or the other. I About Blade Runner, I think I agree with you. Akira, I don't know enough about to feel one way or the other. But I think that's what Dagan's saying. And I think this segues this, uh, us, Dagan, into the question that I want to ask, which is Sure, bring us through how, this, how an anime or how this anime was made from a production standpoint. Because in reading about it, anime was especially well known, as were the cartoons that we grew up with, to cut lots of corners with moving backgrounds, you know. Even Speed Racer and stuff shows this with just the mouth moving and stuff like that. Yeah. And this shows something very different and very stylish and very technical. And so you're talking about putting it under a camera, painting it, all of those kinds of things. How does that work? So it's
1: a very traditional process. One of the very striking things about Akira is they were adapting it from a manga that wasn't finished yet, <laughs> which is very interesting, you know, and a fairly popular manga, but not anything that had huge significance. You know, it wasn't like the obvious, you know, t- talk about Attack on Titan, something that's tremendous. Of course you're going to adapt that into an anime. It's huge, you know, or something like One Piece or something like that. But so that was the first very striking thing that I had to understand. This manga was still happening when they s- decided to adapt it, which also may play into why the story is so convoluted and all the decision-making that went into exactly what chunk they were going to do and how they were going to end it and how they were going to start it and what slice of the story they were going to include and in everything. But production-wise... First of all, Akira took a very Western track for animation production in that as far as that I know, they recorded the voices first, which is not a thing in anime or was not up to this point. So actually made an effort to move the mouth to the audio, you know, animate the mouths to the existing audio and, you know, but took a very traditional track as far as like first they had the script, then they did the storyboard you know, they had a they had a paper storyboard, then they filmed, you know, they did an animatic, which is basically filming the stills of the storyboard under camera, just so you could time out and pace out the entire film. And then they animated it traditionally on paper, flipping pages, filmed those pages under a pencil test machine, you know, to make sure the animation was correct. And then from there, once the animation was approved, it went to cleanup. And then the Ink and paint was done on cells. It was done on, was painted onto celluloid and filmed under a camera. You know, there was no scanning and there was no computers involved. The effects were done with gels, colored gels under glass. You know, this was a very traditional... If you look at it the way a traditional Disney animated film was, you know, was produced from, you know, early on all the way through the 70s into the early 80s, this was a very traditional process. You know, everything was hand-painted. All the backgrounds were hand-painted, you know. And it's funny because there's not, to me, there's not enough. You could find some documentaries. You could find some little anecdotes and stuff like that. But there's not a really, I really need to see like a six-hour making of documentary of this film. And if one exists, I don't know about it. Because I really need to know what they were up against. This film was done a great sacrifice, of great self-sacrifice. There's no other way to say it. I mean, the animation in this film is gorgeous. And what's striking about Katsuhiro Otomo's work, and I know this is something that was important to him, is there's an expressiveness and a level of acting in this film that is not typical of anime. You know, I don't want to get off on too much of a soapbox. I love anime, and I love the stylized treatment of anime, and I love the conventions of anime. I think it's very charming. You know, and I'm not putting all of anime into one box. Certainly today, there's a much more diversity of style now, especially today. But if you look at it in the context of back then in the mid to late 80s, anime relied very much on convention. You know, the person was upset. It was the big eye with the little catchlight bouncing around, and that means they're about to cry. Or, you know, it became this chibi thing when they got mad and it was yelling and it became this super deformed. You know what I mean? Akira is much more, although the style is gorgeous, and I don't mean to oversimplify it by saying it's realistic, but it's much more realistic in the fact of the expressiveness, the level of acting, and even in the action. It goes beyond what anime was doing at that point. You know, if you look at, I want to get much more into some of the details that still confound me and make me go oh my god that's absolutely gorgeous but the level of acting and the level of expressiveness is something that we didn't see before in animation and that's all due to Katsuhiro Otomo's style visual style but also what they were trying to do with this film and that's really what makes it stand out is not only the gorgeous visuals and hand-painted backgrounds and the amount of detail in the backgrounds and just unbelievable amount of painstaking nuance and TLC put in but the animation you know it's really quite gorgeous And it holds up, you know. So that's really what's so striking. I think that's my love letter to Akira. And that's why I really love it so much. Like I was showing you that scene last night where the, you know, they take Canada and his gang in to be interrogated at the police station. And Canada is sitting in front of the police sergeant on a folding chair. And he's doing a thing where he's going back on two legs and going forward again. The animation in that scene... First of all, just to put that little nuance in of him doing that, it speaks to his personality and it's such a nice little personality thing and a whimsical thing. It's those little touches that really make it something special. There's a specific scene that I love, still love where, you might remember, Kyle, where they're pursuing, Canada and Tetsuo are pursuing a couple of the clowns on their motorcycles through a tunnel. And one of the clowns throws a grenade back and it explodes and all this foam, fire retardant foam comes out of the ceiling and Canada sort of stops his bike, but Tetsuo just drives right through it. And at that point, one of the clowns looks back and is like, oh, shit, and hits a, like a thrust button on his handlebar. And it sort of – it's like a b- little boost, and it sort of pops him forward, and his head jerks back. Like just little stuff like that is just the way it's – not only the way it's animated, which is gorgeous, but just the fact of them doing those little things. You know, all those little things that aren't usually a thing in anime. You know, anime is much usually much more stylized and much more, okay, the character's running. The ca- You know, and I'm not putting everything into one box, but that's what really stood out for people for this film. Those little inherent things, even if you're not an animator, those things, you're feeling those things. It becomes immersive. You know, it immerses you in that world, which is really
0: cool. You had pointed out something to me and you anticipated it before the scene was happening or as it was happening. I think it was Tetsuo, but I'm not sure. When he's picking up and pushing his motorcycle... At, yeah, like, that and, was Tetsuo. And, yeah, and you you were like you could feel the heft of it, and it's true like you can feel its weight as the animation is slowly ramping. up as he gets it moving again. Really cool stuff. There's a lot of really pretty, you know, scenes and, and interesting scenes in that. I always love that. It seems complicated. It seemed like a labor of love, and there are no cut corners or few cut corners in, make, in the production of the film, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, of course. Do you remember it? Because you said you had found it a, at these anime conventions. But you don't remember the the theatrical release of it in the United States? No, I really don't.
1: I have no recollection of that. And I guess I saw it for the first time. I was really trying to make sure I got this right. I guess I had purchased that VHS sometime in the, if I'm not mistaken, in the autumn, in the fall of 1989. So that's when I probably first bought the VHS that was dubbed. And you know what? Quite frankly, now that I'm thinking back about it, that might have been a complete bootleg. That might not have even been available on home video yet. You know, because it only came out in the theaters in 88. So I'm not sure. But that's definitely when I first saw it. I don't remember when I got when we got the initial English dub. But I'm really charmed by that initial English dub. I actually love that version of it. Because I think I watched it the most. You know, and it's actually kind of bad. Right. But it's nostalgic for me.
0: Well, where do you want to go from here? We have a few more questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, yeah. and ideas. We can kind of play off those
1: yeah absolutely but
0: is there anything else specifically you wanted to bring up before we get you into know them? what
1: I would just say about Akira what's so magical about it and special to me and I know I'm sort of an old man and an old anime head but you know what's so neat to me I still find things in it I still see things in it I still see things that I never noticed before and I think I'm just so smitten with that fact of the amount of I'm an animator professionally and I know how animation works and I'm very passionate about it but I will say that I know what goes into something like this. And I've never, ever had the opportunity to work on something even close to this quality. And I'm not dissing anything by saying that. I'm just saying very, very few people have. And the fact that I could still, after all these years of being a fan of this film, find new things in it that I've never seen before says a lot. Because I'm looking. And you have quite a critical eye, Call I'll say that. You have, a really, you have a really critical eye for somebody that's not quote-unquote an artist i really. I was really struck by that this weekend, actually, with you, but which is kind of cool. It makes me very proud of you. But there's a scene I saw last night that I never noticed before. If you remember, cause it's sort of a. It's not anything special of a scene. It's not particularly memorable. But this little nuance was so fascinating to me. There's two of the terrorists. They're in like a subterranean little room in the sewers, and they're talking to each other, and one of them's smoking. It's very dark, and they have a key card to a building. And one of them flicks it across the table to the other guy. And they're sitting at, like, this Formica table. And the Formica table is chipping at the end so you can see, like, the balsa wood underneath. As he's talking to the guy across the table, he flicks the pass card, the ID card, across the table. And the ID card hits that little chip of where the Formica is missing, the little flaky balsa wood. And flakes of the balsa wood fly off as that little key card hits it. Like, that's, that's an amazing amount
0: and that adds time to the... Oh, my God. Like,
1: just to put something like that in, you know, I really think that was the vehicle. And I really think that was what they were trying to do with this film. Was It was really trying to do something visually that stood out. And the fact that, you know, I can't talk about too many things. You know, again, I'll refer to Ghost in the Shell. I don't know if you ever saw that, Kyle. That's I have, another, but not in a long time. That's another gorgeous movie where, you know, that crab walker tank is firing the machine gun at the concrete column. And as the concrete column gets chipped away, the rebar underneath gets revealed, and then as the machine gun round starts sparking, like I could think of things like that that are like things like that to me that are like labors of love you know like how important was it to do that? It was so important for them, you know, to add that little extra bit of TLC that most people probably won't even recognize and that that's the kind of stuff that means a lot to
0: me. There was one scene that I pointed out I would I don't remember almost anything from the movie, so I think it was like an, an inconsequential member of the capsules gets knocked off of his bike by one of the clowns and he gets run over by the bike. But there's this cool thing like you anticipate he goes over his bike, beautiful animation of him tumbling and you anticipate he's going to get run over. And then it kind of goes just a beat too long where you're like, oh, they're going to swerve or not even go back to that scene. And then they show very quickly the bike running over his arm and just a little splurt probably like two or three frames of blood come out of his arm as the as the camera pans with the, yeah. with the bike. Yeah. There, I'm sure there are a million things like that in... The sh- or in the movie, but I, I liked that because I, I, knowing that it's not computer generated or computer aided, that every decision made like that added man hours to the project. Absolutely. And so I'm not saying you're not any man hours when you're doing it computer aided or computer generated, but not to this extent. No, absolutely.
1: <laughs> you know, and there but there will be, and there have been, and there will be many more beautiful, lush, and you could talk about. The whole a whole nother thing with Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli's work and stuff like that. But there is a special thing with Akira that will never be emulated because you're, ne- you're never going to do it by hand again like that,
0: you know. It means a lot. Carter Quinn wrote to us and said, How absolutely disturbing are certain scenes in Akira? Seeing it for the first time on late night TV at 11 years, the biggest standouts were the violently disturbing depictions of how fragile humans are and how beautifully light was drawn and depicted. It's funny because there are disparate scenes like there's a dichotomy drawn for me between – two good examples are when the clowns catch up with – I guess it's Tetsuo and the girl. Yeah. And – Kauri. They rip her shirt off showing her bare breasts and then they like start beating the shit out of them and it it appears that they might maybe sexually assault this girl. Yes. You know, and they're about to also torch the motorcycle. The bike. And – there's, like, a real visceral thing where, where – and this is what you were talking about earlier where Canada comes and kind of saves the day, which drives Tetsuo over the edge even more. Yeah. But it also – there was, like, this welling of, like, this is really quite dark. What would have happened here had – not only to his bike but to this girl probably had they not shown up. But then it's contrasted to the scene at the, at the police station or at their school, I think, where the headmaster or the principal is, like, slapping all of them and saying, discipline, discipline, discipline. That's almost very anime. It, yeah. In my mind, like, yeah. that was almost very, very silly. How
1: exaggerated
0: that is, right? So there are really serious scenes and light scenes, and then kind of silly scenes like that. Yeah, I no. I know Whether what you mean whether about. it was meant silly or not, I don't know, but it came off that way.
1: And special shout out to I always love the scene I was telling you last night when Canada and Yamagata are riding in to save the day when Tetsuo is getting the shit beat out of them, and you know Tetsuo and his girlfriend are getting the shit beat out of them, and Canada's on the back of Yamagata's bike, and he slips off the back and. When his feet hit the ground, he's not running fast enough, so he falls forward. It's just—I mean, just stuff like that. It's just like, oh my god, I can just watch that over and over again. There's so much love put into this movie, you know.
0: Jason Bola asks, "What's Dagan's Dagan's favorite part of the film, and what is his favorite portion of animation within it?" We've talked about the things we've liked and, and everything, but is there—is yeah. there a specific part of the film that stands out to you, and is there a specific portion of animation? I love that all out
1: to the you? bikes, like the first 20 minutes. There's two. There's really two big. There's mm, there's three big bike scenes. There's the op- very opening chase. There's the chase that comes a little later with Tetsuo and Canada going through the tunnel, right before Tetsuo's collision. And then there's the chase later on that you were referring to already with Joker, with the head of the rival gang, where he, he and Canada face off. That's like that's an iconic scene for me. And when Canada you know knocks Joker off his bike, and then you just see Canada skidding to a halt sideways with his bike. I really like Canada, but that's because I think he's cool. I don't think he's a good character. I just think he's cool, you know, like everybody does. Those bike scenes stand out for me. The first 20 minutes of the movie is sublime for me. Even the very beginning when they first walk into the bar and Canada's at the jukebox and Yamagata comes in and says, we have them cornered. You know, all the little nuances and lighting effects and things that happen with the CD player and all that stuff is gorgeous. And I think that's probably as good as it gets for me in the movie. There's some other really cool parts later on with Tetsuo, you know, cape cybernetic arm Tetsuo is pretty fucking cool. You know what I mean? Once he has his cape and his cyber arm and he's fighting Canada in the stadium and the Olympic stadium. I love all that stuff as well. You know, I guess I'm kind of a sucker for all the action stuff.
0: Just as an aside, were there, assuming, and and I'm sure it was storyboarded and made in chronological order, which is not common for film but yeah probably more common for animated films were there compromises in the quality as the movie got deeper could you see anything where they were like we're at we're against it now yeah. and we need to get this thing done e,
1: well you know what Kyle you said this earlier so cleverly before too and I'm so glad we remembered to get into this you could see I think and I noticed a couple of things even last night that I never noticed before you could kind of see and this is not intended to sound mean spirited this is just the way it works you could see a you could see where the B team came in and did certain things you know where the A-team is. You know what I mean? You could see it all over. And it's not only the level of animation in those scenes. It's how those scenes stay on model, which you talked about a little bit before, where the characters look right. It starts to get really – you know where it starts to get really sloppy for me? If you guys remember, Kyle, if you would remember, the whole confrontation in the baby nursery where the Esper kids are in, like, that baby nursery – Not the scene where the giant teddy bear and the giant car are attacking Tetsuo. That stuff is gorgeous. But all the stuff that comes later, and that's where Canada and Key come in on on their speeder and everything like that. And that whole confrontation with, I think, the scientist is there and the colonel is there. Tetsuo really falls apart in those scenes. He doesn't look good in those scenes. It's really weird. And I think that's because it's so still. He's not doing much there. A lot of it's shot in medium shot. So you don't even have the full figure to worry about. And he's not saying a lot. There's just a conversation between... He's not doing a lot. There's a a lot of conversation between the characters. He's doing a couple of things where he does the gesture with his arm and he does that little psionic blast to keep everybody back. But for the most part, the animation is pretty limited in those scenes. And you could see, you know, I think in those chunks... You could see things fall apart. Did you notice anything specific where it looked weird?
0: I don't know why I notice it in anime more than I notice it in Western cartoons or Western, and I'm sure it's there too. There's this thing where if you're filming in real life a person with his back to you and then he turns around or turns half or turns full towards you, the camera doesn't need to pan to compensate for that because the motion is natural. And there's this thing I notice in Attack on Titan and in other anime I've watched recently and both in Akira where A person turning is compromised by a moving camera all the time in these shots. It must have something to do with the technique that makes it easier to render because it always looks weird. If you freeze these frames, and I didn't, but I'm sure if you froze some of these frames that I'm talking about, these awkward facial frames, you would see a character that doesn't look right at all.
1: No, I know what you mean
0: by that. I can't eloquently put it in words because I don't know animation nearly well enough to do it, but there's something like where the camera never seems to be perfectly still or the perspective never seems to be perfectly still when this is happening, so it makes the motion look weird. And so... Whenever you see a character at half or at two-thirds or one-third or whatever, and then they face forward or face a different direction, it always looks weird in anime to me.
1: No, you're describing it it right. You're describing it well. You know what that is, Kyle? When the character's rotating, it's hand-drawn. That rotation is hand-drawn. They have to sort of plot that out and draw it. Moving the camera actually makes it more forgiving because moving it over space while it's rotating, in theory, would remove some of the oddness that might be inherent in the drawing, but... Like you're saying, I think the whole thing of it is odd because you don't do that. You know, when the camera's moving in live action, the camera's moving. You don't have to move the camera just because the character's rotating. But that's a thing to sort of save it from looking odd and the the drawing's looking odd and the rotation. But inherently, it's a very, it's unnatural because you don't see that in film. You only see that in animated film.
0: But there are these things that I was staggered by. In terms of the backgrounds, the, the city and the layer, what I assume are layers drawn layers that are literally on top of each other in the frame when they're shooting it but there's these certain shots of the city specifically these golden buildings with like these extraordinary shots in the last th- two thirds of the movie or whatever or last third of the movie the glimmer and shimmer of the individual windows on these in these frames I actually read someone talking about this too I don't know if they are talking about the specific thing I was talking about are really stunning and there's a sh- shot during the helicopter scene in, in the first third of the movie where the glass is falling and they're shimmering as the glass is falling. I'm like, this is, it seems very complicated. It's absolutely gorgeous. But for what I'm making fun of there, there are these environmental graphical flares and and animation flares and and just stylistic kind of things that are probably not even necessary that no one would know if they were missing that I was quite staggered by. The Neo Tokyo itself is really, really quite stunning. It really is. And I love the layers, like the almost parallax-like scroll of the different like, like, there's a static background layer, and then, like, almost pencil drawing looking buildings in the background. Like, they look straight up pencil drawing as yeah. if they were not painted at all. Right. So, it develops a hierarchy. Right. Exactly. It's pretty cool.
1: Of seeing something that's not
0: vivid in the distance.
1: Yeah. And th- what you're re- talking about, Kyle, is so important because they were doing all those effects, like the glittering gl- broken glass falling down and stuff with age old techniques. I mean, you're talking about like, you know, using glass, using colored gel under glass, using glitter. These are things that are hard to do in digital and computer animation, you know, that are hard to pull off and make look natural. Let alone with all these traditional techniques that a lot of this stuff was invented in the 40s and 50s, you know, that they, they were sort of Oxberry camera techniques. And that's what they're using. It's not only the fact of executing, of plotting it frame by frame under a ca- and shooting it under a camera at 24 frames or 30 frames a second. You know, 24 shots. A set. I mean, that's even on twos. Even when you're filming everything and exposing each shot on twos, that's a lot of work. Nothing in this movie's on twos. <laughs> so it's like everything is an individual draw. It's 24 frames a second, and that's what it's drawn at.
0: Gentle Fan wrote into us and said, I'd love to hear Dagan dive into how the animation and design of the movie influenced and uh, others working in the industry today. Few films can compete with it on a visual level. Are there things that wouldn't exist today that do exist because Akira
1: influenced oh, it, or
0: are there people that you know of that got into this because of this specific film or this specific manga? And is it as influential as it appears to be?
1: I had an enormous impact. I mean, you even talk about guys like Todd McFarlane and this movie having an influence on them. You know, it's not just anime and manga artists. You know, you'll talk about you know Western manga and animation artists. This, this thing had a huge. You talk about guys at Pixar. You talk about Todd McFarlane you talk about all these guys. This movie had an enormous impact because of the terms of the amount of quality that they were able to put into this movie. This movie was the most expensive animated movie in the East ever produced at that point. They spent a lot of money on this yeah, thing. It was like 10
0: million dollars, I think. It's a lot of money, which is probably still a pretty high budget.
1: It's a high them. budget for an animated film, you know, and they really they pulled out all the stops on this, but I think also you have to talk about Katsuhiro Otomo's visual style and the influence it had on manga and anime, which is always a tough thing to sort of track and to sort of talk about in depth, but I think what he did was he made it okay to go outside of a lot of those visual conventions, you know, and again, I love, you know, quote-unquote traditional anime and manga conventions and the visual styles that manga and anime sort of developed and innovated but i think he made it okay to try different things i see a lot of him in isayama who created attack on titan i see a lot of katsuhiro otomo you could see his hand in a lot of things and i think he opened up the door he was one of those guys i'll say that opened up the door to try different styles and still it was still okay to put that under the heading of anime and manga and i love that his style lent so well to film And was able, you know, was really able to take the acting. It has a very Western level of acting and expressiveness that wasn't really seen that much in anime at that time. You know, it's almost a nice blending of Western high budget traditional animation like Disney and combined with anime. You know, I almost see it as a hybrid of the two. And I think that's what makes it special.
0: Would you recommend that people? watch the film or read the manga if they were interested in, in... I
1: just think they're two different things. I think you're going to get two different things from it. Katsuhiro Otomo's a brilliant draftsman. He's an exquisite artist. So I think you'll get a lot of that from the, you know, and he also experimented with covers. A lot of the covers, he tried different things and he he's really a beautiful illustrator and a beautiful draftsman. So if you I think you'll get that out of the manga. It's gorgeous. Every panel is just gorgeously drawn in his environments, and I specifically remember the Olympic Stadium, and the way he rendered that in the comic books. That whole arc with Tetsuo, sort of living in the Olympic Stadium, and that whole thing with his throne and his cape and the broken glass and the you know the shards of glass and the stone everywhere. It's just absolutely gorgeous hand-drawn stuff. But I think the anime gives you something different. I would just say, if you're going to watch the anime, absolutely watch it. You know, I recommend this movie to
0: everybody. It's on Hulu, by the way. It's on Hulu. Is it on Netflix right now? No, I I looked on Netflix. I looked on. You can't even buy it, it seems like, on Amazon. I looked for it on Amazon. I don't know. Oh, that's odd. You might be able to buy it on Amazon. Check that out. But if you have a Hulu subscription right now, you can watch it for free. And they have both the dub and the sub.
1: But definitely try to be mindful also of watching it with the perspective of how old this movie is. It's 30 years old almost. (laughs) That's insane. They were working on this movie 30 years ago. You know, it's an unbelievable achievement, this film. I hope, and I hope everybody enjoys it. You know, I would just say, and I know I'm very biased towards this type type of thing, but I would just say watch it for how visually stunning it is. You know, it's absolutely gorgeous.
0: Anton K. asks us, were there ever talks to do a series or prequel to the movie? After watching the movie, I was all over the manga and I loved it. I always wanted to see the entire story animated. Mm. I don't know, you can speak to this more, but I don't know that anyone would endeavor to do an animated, say, TV show of it, because it would always be compared to the magnificence of the original one, and you can't really probably do it justice without paying an equivalent amount of money in a $10 million budget, especially in Japan at the time in the 80s, where money was a little deflated and depressed. People have to remember that the Japanese economy in the 80s was actually booming, but into the 90s, and actually still today, it's very flat. So the money would translate to many times that today, and I don't know, and that's only for two hours and five minutes of animation. So Good point, Carl. I don't know that that would be a wise thing to do, but what I was more curious about was if how you feel about this kind of endeavor over the last or this attempt over the last 20 something years to get a live action version of it off the ground and that the stakeholders are on board with it. But I was reading that there's been like a dozen directors and writers attached to it over time, including people that we're familiar with that that, I, you know, I know Gary would have he wrote one of the scripts that they turned down. He ended up writing Rogue One, of course. Right. But how do you feel about them trying to make it into something, either a movie, a live-action movie, or maybe even a live-action television show?
1: I'm not into it. Uh, you know, I know I'm Captain Purist. I don't mean to be obnoxious when it comes to this kind of stuff. I absolutely do not want it. Don't even do it. Why? I mean, it's, to, to me, it's like we're talking about, you know, people are recommending, you know, should, they, should we do an animated TV series of it or should they do a prequel? the thing about Akira is, to me, I think it's a very important, and it's actually my favorite piece of cyberpunk in a way it does have a sort of a cyberpunk vibe to it and there is a really important works of you know of cyberpunk like you could talk about William Gibson's Neuromancer or you know of course Blade Runner, The Matrix, Masamune Shiro's work of Appleseed and Ghost in the Shell things like Shadowrun right but I think why I love Akira so much and it's my favorite piece of cyberpunk is that it focuses on You know, sort of like William Gibson's Neuromancer. If you guys haven't... We'll we'll talk about that one more in in the future. But sort of similar to that and the fact that it revolves around young people's experience in the post-apocalyptic and oppressive world. And I like that. That speaks to me. I love... I think that's why I always liked manga more than American comics because I'd rather it be centered about young people and teenagers. I think that's just inherently more interesting. You know, especially when you are a teenager. You know, I'd rather... I'd much rather read a Robotech comic than learn about Superman. Superman's an adult, he's boring. I want to learn about what these kids are doing in Neo Tokyo and how they're surviving, you know what I mean, the Spike Gang. But I will say that the thing about Akira for me was not really that the story was this amazing thing and the characters were an amazing thing. It was the art, you know, in the manga and in the animated version and in the film version. So I think that when you remove those elements and you remove Katsuhiro Otomo's hand, I don't think it's even worth it. A live action, why? A live action Akira, why? Yes, it's cool to see Canada's bike. We already saw that in Ready Player One. It was fine. It doesn't even look that great. So it's like, to me, it's like, why do a live action version? I mean, it would be cool to see a live action Tetsuo, but otherwise, it's like, yes, we know you could do this. You could make an amazing Neo Tokyo with the technology you have now, but... It was cool to make all these holographic images that were traditionally animated and had a transparency and that you were doing with all these age-old effects and how gorgeous it was. But we know you could do it now. We've seen it. We saw Blade Runner. We saw the sequel to Blade Runner. What's the point of doing it in live action? I don't understand why you would want to do it. It's never going to live
0: up to the original. The cool thing about it, the only thing that gives me any positivity at all about it is uh, Katsuhiro Otomo is apparently still incredibly hands-on with it and, like, has, like, rights of refusal to, like, anything that is done. That's the, cool. So what I was reading about was that he's actually quite into the idea of someone adapting it and actually even changing it in major ways, but as long as he can sign off on everything that's done. Interesting. There's that, at least, that even if it doesn't work out or it comes out and it's underwhelming, like, you kind of have to blame the man himself because he let it happen. No one's – no one. it's not like Warner or someone owns this and they're just going to do whatever they want with it. Like, he yeah. literally owns it, and there's – Nothing that can be done without his approval.
1: That gives me a little bit of hope.
0: So you're not dealing with like the estate of or the, the yeah. big mega corporation. It's You will one day maybe be dealing with those when he passes away in the future. But for the time being, that, that's what gives me hope and maybe is the exact reason why this hasn't happened yet because it doesn't live up to whatever he, whatever he wants. Is he still like a legendary figure, having never really replicated his success? I was looking again at his works, and I don't recognize any of them. But is he still like a dude that would be stopped on the streets or something? In, in, yeah, in Japan? Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. I think definitely. I I, j- I just found out he did a collaboration with Supreme. You know, I could see Supreme doing that. But well, I think if I th- honestly think if Katsuhiro Otomo never did another thing besides Akira, he would have to be lauded, because. It's such an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Not even if you take the film aside, the manga, it's just really gorgeous and really influential. And he's done a lot of things. He did a film called *Steamboy*, which I actually went to see him in New York. I guess. God, it was like 2004, maybe he was uh, supposed to be giving like a lecture in front of the movie. And he was there, but I think what had happened was he, he was with his agent or something and he lost his voice so he couldn't talk, but he was there in the beginning of it. Or just to say hi and then watch the movie. And all of his works following never lived up to Akira. I think it's one of those things where it was just like a really tough act to follow. You know, it was the right thing for the right time and it was just magical. And it was one of those things that's hard to top, you know. But I think even without anything that he's done since, I think you'd have to tip your cap as being extremely important.
0: Isaac Sainova has the final comment for us or question. He says, I love art that makes me uncomfortable, like heavy metal music and horror games like Bloodborne. So when I saw Akira, it was a perfect fit for me. Do either of you seek out art or experiences that make you uncomfortable? Was the first time seeing Akira an experience like that for either of you? How do you feel about that? The idea of Akira being dis, you know uncomfortable and kind of seeking discomfort in your art and entertainment as something that gets you riveted or makes you excited. That's interesting. I really like that
1: talking point. But for me personally, that was Isaac, right? Yes. I've talked about this before and you guys are probably getting to know me a little bit now. I'm a pretty sensitive guy. I don't really like to be uncomfortable. I don't like really horror. I don't like... Blood and guts and gore and everything like that's not really my thing. And Akira still makes me uncomfortable. It's quite violent. Not only the rape scene and the you know beating up Tetsuo's girlfriend scene, but there's whole scenes where you know innocent people are getting killed and the bridge collapsing. You know what I mean? That stuff really strikes a chord with me because it's extremely violent. You know, it's telling a story. I don't think any of Akira is necessarily mean spirited or something. But no, I don't purposely seek it out. In fact, I'd rather not see it in things. But I understand why it exists in things to lend strength. And, you know, exist as a storytelling element. What about you, Kyle? How do you feel about things like that?
0: I used to be squeamish when I was younger and then realized that there was nothing to be squeamish about, really, with a lot of these things, as long as you can kind of. I do get a little grossed out and things get a little hard to watch for me. It's funny, though. It's the things that are real that are really difficult for me to watch sometimes. Sure. A funny example of this is that there is this website with this, like, female dermatologist. Has millions of subscribers. And her whole thing is like people go in with these extraordinary like cysts and pimples and like things like that, and she basically films them being popped and like extracted. I can sit there and watch them; it's very satisfying for a minute watching all the shit come out of these <laughs> I see gigantic. My wife that stuff. But then, like after a while, I'm like, I can't, uh, like I can't watch it anymore. Uh. To be darker, you can go online and see some really terrible shit, specifically from the Middle East, specifically from ISIS and, you know, terrorist organizations. And a lot of people's first exposure to real violence, honestly, was Daniel Pearl being beheaded. Yes. And when you see something like that for the first... I've only seen stuff like that in a very limited way, and I'm like, I can't watch this. Frankly, it was the same way when I saw Saddam Hussein get hanged. Saddam Hussein's, like, not a good guy. There's there's films of that, people throwing shit at him as he's getting hanged. It's a really wild fucking... You know, very real when he was captured basically by the insurgents and basically and they hanged him and were celebrating all that. I'm like, I I can't get down with this kind of stuff. So I I intentionally avoid all of that moving forward for the last 10 years of my life. Right, right. That when you see real violence, a real beheading, for instance, or we were talking about Ken Burns, Vietnam and the famous shot of the South Vietnamese intelligence officer just shooting the guy point blank right in his head on national TV. Yeah. And you see the guy's blood just dripping out of his head. And like, that's real. That really happened. I don't like, like, violent shit necessarily just for the sake of being violent. I right. think that violence can add a great deal to a story, to the aesthetic. I think sometimes it's extremely necessary. I think other times the lack of violence or insinuating violence is often more frightening or at least leaving it to your imagination. I think a lot of horror films, great horror films, do that. But then there are visceral and violent horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or things like that where it's different and you like that it shows or it doesn't show a little bit more depending on what you're watching so I don't necessarily seek things out to put me to make me uncomfortable but I I more applaud attempts to tell you what's happening without necessarily feeling the need to show you show it to you in the most visceral way and I feel about that I feel that way about sex way more than I feel that way about violence by the way like the tutors is like one of my favorite shows probably the last 10 years and there's incredible sex scenes in that show that are very visceral and real or whatever and i'm like this is kind of a waste of time right i get it you it's, know like this is sensationalist this i'd rather have 90 seconds of dialogue than right than watching king henry the eighth fuck Anne boleyn again you know it's just so i've always been way more turned off actually by sexual content and not in a prudish way no but just in a way of like this is kind of a waste of time and kind of uncomfortable to watch i mm. don't necessarily feel that way as much about violence to be honest that's interesting. Yeah. The sexual stuff could
1: really stand out as sensationalist and maybe a little bit, you know, there for the wrong reasons. You know, as trying to get eyeballs.
0: How much do you need to show these kinds of things for us to get it? Show them rolling around a little bit for 10 seconds if you want to make it clear that this is what's happening. But when has that ever added to something? Right. When has when it really ever added making me watch 90 seconds of this? What did it add other than wasting 90 seconds of a, of a 48 minute show or yeah. a, a two hour movie? That kind of shit from a storytelling perspective annoys me. If I ever wrote a sex scene, I would just more make it come and go. Right. Pardon
1: the pun. <laughs> I'm like an eight-year-old. People start making out. I like fast-forward. Like in Mad Men. Oh, they're the... going to start rolling around. But no, it's fast-forward. Mad Men's fine with it. That. I don't mind that. They, I'm not they, watching that. They
0: don't get too out of control. They of don't. It. I just, I'm just i like really an eight-year-old. I'm yeah. like, nah. Uh, <laughs> yuck. I don't want to watch it. It's like I'm a little Yeah, ridiculous. it certainly doesn't turn me on. It turns me off in some ways just because I just would rather more exposition. No,
1: I hear you. This it, You only have so much time. Use it wisely, you know.
0: I enjoy violent video games and I enjoy violent movies. I just think that it has to be... As long as there's a purpose, then, yeah. uh, then almost anything, I I'll go with that. I'm down with almost anything as long as there's a purpose. But it's the fright that not showing something or just insinuating something that only movies can really do and TV shows can really do. Books can't really do it because they have to verbally allude to it and sure. games can't really do it because it's a mechanism of play right but movies and television shows can and so they ought to so you weren't this is way before your time but you weren't
1: a faces of death guy you know like when i grew up those vhs faces of death movies were a big thing i don't you know, even know like, what that is you don't even know faces of death. so faces so. of death was basically i don't think they were legal but sometimes there are video stores and stuff and you could get them you know, you had to be over 18 to check them out, I think. But there were compilations of people really dying, whether it was suicides or people getting killed or whatever. So it was just a compilation of showing real life. Wow, that's wild. And that was always a big thing growing up. It's like, oh, I watch Faces of Death. I fa-. I would never watch that shit.
0: Yeah, I don't know why you... That is not thing. I don't my know thing. what would draw you to, to that. I don't know. I don't. I'm not built like that. I need to at least know that something's fictional. And that's what I was trying to say. Like, there are things online, videos that circulate where, you know, like the kind of funny like accident compilations or people like and they don't they cut off the very end and I'm like they cut off the very end because that guy's fucking dead. Yeah that guy work got worked. You know like that guy's done. And uh, I don't really know that I get off on that. But you know teach his own. I mean I'm not judging people if they do. Are no, your, your best friend PJ's people. in super into that Oh shit. he
1: was Mr. Faces of
0: Death. But so. I but that to me is like that's a temptation of fate that you don't really want to
1: I think it's you know similar to what we were saying. It's just like some people do want to push themselves to to make themselves uncomfortable, and I think that's just not a thing that
0: resonates with me. But it's weird because that's a like pushing yourself to play Bloodborne, which isn't that scary, or pushing yourself to you know watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Freddy or something like that. Right? It's fake. Yes. So, I don't know why you would push yourself to realize this horrible, gory, realistic thing that you would only see if you were in like fucking Vietnam or something like that. Doesn't it just—it doesn't me. really make any. I—I I, I don't. I cannot relate to that at all. That's, me either. That's strange.
1: To me, it's—that's authentically I, strange. I have no idea what makes somebody want to watch that stuff. That would—that would just make me. I mean, I can't even. I mean, you know, my experience with Johnny got his gun. You know what I mean? Like, imagine me watching a Faces of Death video. I'd be disturbed for life. You know, for me, I just know my capacity, and that's.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't shake those visuals, probably. so. No. But that's it for this episode, Dagon. Should we do a lightning round before we Absolutely. Go? Let's okay. do
1: a lightning round. Hit me. Hit me, Sergeant. All right. Here we go. Akira lightning round. Canada or Tetsuo? Tetsuo is more interesting. Yeah, I agree. Canada is just cooler. Yeah. Okay. If you had ESP power, psionic mm-hmm. powers, would you prefer the power of flight or the power to fight? Oh, this is different than the one you
0: asked me. You yeah, asked me a little like,
1: different because now it's like you know, would you do those little force blast things that Tetsuo did? Yeah, or?
0: that I mean, that's cool as hell. I would, I would probably want to fight. You prefer if that? that over, was not, yeah, over flying? Yeah, flying is flying passive. If I want to be peaceful or neutral, then I would fly. But I don't know that I would be a villain anyway. Obviously, but you know, to be able to do those cool things would be pretty, pretty harrowing.
1: I, I definitely like squeeze your fist and just crush something. Yeah,
0: kind of cool. Maybe, maybe I'll squeeze your head like a grape
1: squeezing your head
0: <laughs> tokyo or neo tokyo tokyo i think neo tokyo is a
1: little too dystopian for me how about some of the prophetic stuff that exists in this movie the tokyo tokyo olympics is coming up yep that's right? that's yeah that's interesting that, I remember right that, i
0: remember yeah i remember that actually being written about when tokyo got oh really yeah that there was like some weirdness there and you know i i told you in the beginning because they they span out on neo or no they span out on real tokyo when the bomb goes off and i've been to tokyo twice in real life yeah and it really is fucking huge i went to a hotel bar at the top of a, the hotel i was staying in shibuya probably 40 or 45 stories up and you can see mount fuji in the distance but oh, it's so cool it literally doesn't end like it, i'm not even being facetious it doesn't fucking end as far it's, as your eye can yeah see. like in every direction except for the bay literally it was just a cylindrical bar yeah and we were drinking the, the drinks were really good and I just I was staggered by that. I'm like nothing. I've never. I I was born and raised in Long Island, but New York City a bajillion times. New York. This has place has. New York has nothing on this place. That's nothing. Insane. A third of the population of Japan lives in Tokyo or the surrounding. Sub- suburbs Is it a of Tokyo. third? Yeah, one third.
1: Holy Thirty million people. Wow, I didn't know that. I had no idea. So and way that, bigger
0: I, than the New York metropolitan area. That's more than people in New York City, Long Island, Westchester by multiplied by two. I. Think.
1: That's insane. So you're everything that you're seeing from that perspective, that high up, is all Tokyo.
0: It's all uh, yeah, it's all Tokyo. Holy and then you cow. just see Mount Fuji in the distance. That's insane. Really, really remarkable place. So I can't wait. We'll, to go. We'll, Yeah, we'll go together. And, and yeah, so I'm gonna go with real Tokyo.
1: Real Tokyo. Okay, good good choice. So for motorcycles, Harley type bikes or Japanese bikes, Yamahas
0: and and and. I the used place. to like Japanese bikes more, but I like Harley's more as an adult. Okay. Although I will ask, what's the deal with the advertisements on the motorcycle? Do you know the story behind that? Like it's. Mm like Canon and Dunlop and all of these things, like they're using these names and these logos. Oh, on Canada's, bike. Yeah, on, yeah. Do you I know don't... what the, was that like supposed to be like, did they sponsor the, anim- the anime?
1: Their production was like basically funded by a conglomeration of companies. They seem to be a conglomeration of media companies. I have it listed here somewhere, but it wasn't necessarily Canon and those type of people. But that might very well be, because this movie was funded by like a bunch of companies that came together in order to do it.
0: I was just curious about like why are why are there all these ads on only Yeah his and
1: it has the um has the American Air Force symbol on there, right? Like the star with yeah. the stripes on the side. So I don't know. That's a great question, actually. I never looked into that. Yeah, me neither. But it could be something to do with that because it was funded by a bunch of media companies. Maybe that's the way they felt they could only do something that big budget if everybody had a piece of it, had a stake, in it they all made their money back in spades. So uh the clowns or the capsules? The capsules.
0: Although the clowns are a way cooler design.
1: They are cool. You're right. They're different, various helmets. And you know what's also cool about Joker, the leader of the the big guy with that really cool bike that's the leader of the clowns? He changes his face paint in the comic. He eventually becomes – not to ruin the comic for anybody, but he eventually becomes a protagonist and teams up with Canada. But he often changes his face paint. He never looks the same. He he always does something different with his face, which is actually kind of cool.
0: I just like that there's one shot with like the guy's helmet down where you look, think you're looking at his face and then he like lifts up and it's like the... That's just what's on top yeah, of his
1: helmet. It's cool. It's so, it's so neat. Okay. Helmet or no helmet? We were talking about this the other day with scooters
0: around here. When I rode a scooter in San Francisco, I wore a helmet, but that was because it was legal yeah. or illegal not to. I I think it should be up to the person. Isn't that interesting? The clowns are very safe, but the capsules aren't. Yeah. Hey, what's up with that? I think you should wear a helmet, but I don't think you should be compelled to wear a helmet.
1: Okay, well said.
0: Just like in New Hampshire, you can't—you don't have to wear a motorcycle helmet there. Or oh,
1: that's—it's not. Oh, that's right. Is that the only state in the entire country? I don't know.
0: It, when I lived there, I, it might have changed. But when I lived there, if you were 13 or older, you can sit in any part of the car, I think, without a seatbelt. And if you were 13 or younger, you had to wear a seatbelt only in the front seat, I think, and you didn't have to wear a motorcycle helmet at all. Oh, yeah. Live free or die. If
1: you want, if you want to die, that's fine. You're living free.
0: Well, my whole thing is like, you know what? It, it's the same way why I think drugs should be de- decriminalized. Like even heroin and stuff like that. It's like, do we want? It's up to the individual. Like if you're if you're this fucking stupid, this is maybe a way to purge the idiots out of out of society in a way. Like if you're if you're this stupid <laughs> to to, wear, to ride a motorcycle for years on end without a helmet, okay. Like that, like I that's, totally hear you. You know what I mean? Like I, I, don't know why I don't know why we're like so insistent on holding a hand out to people that want to kill themselves. Like just, I absolutely just it. do it. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Like, hey,
1: you know what? Yeah, it's 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 up to the individual. You have the freedom
0: to live, and you have the freedom to die. If you have all the information you need, and you do, if you if you don't know the catastrophic statistics about not wearing a motorcycle helmet or the catastrophic statistics about putting a heroin needle in your arm, okay. <laughs> See ya. You'll find out one way or the <laughs> other, I guess. See you on the other side. Fantasy or cyberpunk. Fantasy
1: computer
0: animation or cell animation i i think cell animation is way more laborious but i feel like the, the results are way more artistic and in, inherently than, yeah than computer-aided animation or just straight up cg
1: i mean there's room for both you know what's funny to think about you could talk about things technology and things progressing and evolving but you know ebooks versus books or whatever but things will never go back to cell animation it's almost impossible that anybody would do that again you know, little indie art projects and stuff like that. But for ma- major pieces of media that are intended to make money, it's never going to go back to that. Yeah, Isn't I mean, that why, interesting.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's the same reason why you would never see a, a book publisher use literally type fit things manually by hand like they used to. You know, seventy years ago, people lose sight of that shit. You know, that absolutely. Even people used to have to literally take go page by page on these metal plates and fucking t- put it all out. And imagine if you were doing that for War and Peace or something. I like can't that. even understand that. That's, that's how like it
1: worked. Meticulous, you know, and cr- such craft as and,
0: well. And you would, you couldn't, you can could make mistakes very easily doing that. But also you might only had 30 S's or 50 D's or something like that. And so you can only do a certain pages at a the time. Then you had to make sure you had to write and then you had to scramble them all and do the next pages. Imagine if you were doing that for, you know, no. there, there are certain things that just don't make sense. Maybe that's more what we're talking about. here. Right, right, right.
1: Thank God for evolution in that case. So, live-action Akira, we talked about this. You're going to say yes or no to that?
0: I'm totally fine with it, but I don't know that it's really necessary. I'm really of the mind that things should just be left alone. I don't understand why we keep revisiting things over and over again, unless they were made initially to be revisited. You can run Mega Man into the ground because it had a sequel a year after it came out, but Akira you know, is is renowned and regarded in ways that would unfairly position whatever it was to compare to it and it's not going to compare and so why would you ever do it there are just certain things you cannot do
1: do a new piece of cyberpunk is fledgling territory we have some important works of cyberpunk we talked about them a little bit neuromancer and *Shadowrun*, and blade runner and stuff but it's largely untrodden territory do a new cyberpunk thing about kids the well is limitless
0: yeah i I just
1: why go back it's a cash grab that that's i'm sorry i don't mean to be so you know conservative about it or traditional about it, but that's ultimately what it is. You're using the name to make more money off of it.
0: Yeah, more power too if you want, but just be prepared for the consequences of that. Although although the consequences might be they don't care because they're gonna make a lot of money on it.
1: Right. That I mean ultimately that's they're laughing all the way to the bank, right? And finally, a little Reddit, ready player one reference. Have you seen this movie?
0: No. And not, I've not read the book either. It's been on great. my shelf for years. Not
1: great. Canada's Bike or The DeLorean. They both appear in the film. You know, it's a nerd culture film, fantasy.
0: I knew a dude that had a DeLorean in San Francisco.
1: Yeah, I knew a guy that had one in Connecticut. Actually,
0: very interesting car. He really he sold it reg- he, when he had a kid, and he like deeply regretted it.
1: Very interesting story, the whole DeLorean story. Yeah. but yeah, they're really neat.
0: I think Canada's bike is more interesting, but they're both iconic pieces of well cinema history, I guess. The DeLorean obviously is universally more iconic, but yeah,
1: sure. There's a That's place true. for
0: both. I will say that it's that that movie, the Ready Player One thing, kind of bothered me. I don't I don't know much about the book. I know it's referential. You didn't read it. No, I haven't. It's been on my shelf for years and years and years. I bought it. It's okay. I bought it on Amazon probably literally in 2008, 2009. Okay. And to me, why do we have to shove 5,000 references into something? It's so fucking stupid. I, I don't the whole Easter egg phenomenon that the internet has just exploded has ruined deliberate creation of things. Yeah. And I'm sure some people liked Ready Player One as a film. I saw people shitting all over it. It
1: wasn't that great, man. I watched it on the plane coming over. I have to say the book I don't think the book is that great, to be honest with you. I think it's over a little overhyped. I'd like to hear I'd like to have a discussion about it with you guys and with you, Kyle, in the future. But
0: Yeah, maybe I'll read it we can do an episode about but it. But
1: the the movie wasn't very good to me. And you know what? I I just think it's inevitable with that with the proliferation and growth of nerd culture, somebody was going to do this. Like what you're saying, putting everything, you know, Canada's bike, the DeLorean, Freddy Krueger, Gundams, all this stuff was going to be, you know, kind of put into one basket in a story. Somebody was going to do it, you know.
0: Well, it's sad when a film is more impressive because it got literally hundreds of corporations to sign off on these things simultaneously than the actual film itself. That's probably a problem. You know, when I saw the references, the list of references in Ready Player One, I was staggered that they were able to f- pull that off from a legal standpoint. So
1: many things, right? Iron Giant. Right. All the, this-
0: the, dude, an asinine amount of stuff. I, that was way more, when it's more impressive from a corporate perspective than it is from a film perspective, <laughs> that's probably not speaking, you know, because to, to whoever or whomever or whatever group, got all the clearances for that yeah incredible that's an incredible feat
1: dude. absolutely the i know i know what it's
0: like working with some of these companies i know what it's like
1: yeah to be able to do that firsthand you, you know who did that <laughs> i don't know if you've ever seen it call i highly recommend it and we'll talk about this movie in the future and now the sequel's coming out wreck it ralph disney's wreck it ralph mm-hmm. they were able to do that with video games you know you got qbert ryu pac-man dig dug all these things in one movie you know, that's when I started to be like, oh, shit, like, is Disney going to buy Capcom? Which, is, you know, which is kind of asinine because Capcom wouldn't be a thing for Disney. It's too small, you know. But, you know, what? one more thought I have on Akira with, with talking about Kaneda's bike. It's said in the movie that that bike is stolen. Where are the rest of these? There's more of these things? You know what I mean? Like, that's interesting, right? Yeah. That's an interesting thought. Sure. But, we you know, if we, if we saw any others, then it wouldn't be. Canada Spike wouldn't, it yeah, be, wouldn't special, be special. Right, so.
0: Exactly, yeah. Well, that was a fun episode. Akira. Remember, you can go watch it on Hulu for free. Probably buy it on Amazon. You can always go buy the Blu-ray and DVD if you want. And the manga, if you're interested in being a gigantic dork. Tetua! Canada! <laughs> Jeez Louise, I'm not going to have any voice by the end of this. Uh, <laughs> We're almost this. done. One yeah, more we have to one go. more to do after this. Well, we appreciate you guys listening to us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Stand. Get access to each episode a week early without ads. Submit questions, comments, and concerns to be used in every episode if you'd like. Submit topics. Vote on other topics. Get exclusive podcasts, all sorts of things. Your help is essential, so please consider it if you have the disposable income. If you don't and you're listening on free feeds, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, whatever, please do consider leaving us a nice review, five stars, whatever. Those kinds of things help us find a new audience and help us bubble up. So it is very much appreciated. Knockback is one of the biggest retro podcasts in the world, so it's pretty cool that you guys have allowed us to do that. Thank you, you guys. So we will see you next time for more Knockback. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash collinslaststand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Azan Isa Al Raisi, Ahmad Always, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Jeremy Brocos, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Matthew Kanoi, William O. Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, David Cox, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D. Daniel Dellonikos, Travis Travis Depew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbinder, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem, Al Daniel Glassford, Nicholas J. Gorblush, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Dominic Restini, Miranda Grubba, Random Guy Radio, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, John Clote, Kevin Kamaki, Taylor Christian Laudren, Christian Larson, Jackson Lassiquea, Daniel Laws, Joe. Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lewin Ray Loper, Brendan Lyle, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Michael Martello, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mach Media, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Ryman. Reimond- Schneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Riley Smith, Gerard Stuave, Stephen Summingut, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael-Edward Wendt, Griffin West, Mike Wendt, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Richter86, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, and Donk2015.